the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I can't wait to share with you the insights that the Lord has been giving me out of this passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to John chapter 4. And we're going to talk about a subject that I began last week. And then we're going to conclude, hopefully this week, on communicating some good news. But those of you who weren't able to be with us last week, I don't want you to feel like you're a Johnny-come-lately. I'm going to help you so that you can be right along with us. And the rest of us, we're going to be excited for you as we give you a little bit of time to play catch-up. So we're going to slow down a little bit so you can be a part of what we're doing. And then we're all going to get on the train together and go to the finish line. I want to talk a little bit about communicating that good news of how a person could be absolutely certain of having eternal life when they die by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I got thinking about some of my friends that like to play golf. I don't play golf. I, I wish I had more time or maybe more money to do that. But I, 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 I like the guys who do play golf. And some of those guys that play golf a little bit more ardently, they're really involved in it. They like to watch the golf channel. Now, to me, sometimes that's the greatest channel on television when I have trouble sleeping because it just kind of knocks me right out. But when you talk to some of these guys, if I said, if I had a magic wand and I could give you all day with one of the famous golfers of your choice, and I'll pick Tiger Woods, forget about all his junk in the past, but he's a world-famous golfer at one time. Wouldn't you like to watch how he played golf? Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. And you talk about other people, they'd love to go with that particular person who's well-known for being a success in that art that they do, whatever it might be. Well, we who are Christians, while we might value certain things in this life and we enjoy doing that and we want to do it better, I believe that for those mature Christians in their own heart, they're saying, but if there's one thing that I could really excel at, that would be how to open a conversation with someone who doesn't believe about Jesus Christ the way I do and to be able to communicate into their heart in such a way that they would then come to faith alone in Jesus Christ. Well, there are a lot of great people that have done some wonderful things in the area of evangelism, whether they did it in a big group like this, sharing the gospel, or whether it's one-on-one. There's a lot of video series out there, CDs, DVDs, all of that on how to do it. But I have to tell you, frankly, that when I get in a jam, as I'm talking to someone, my mind often says to myself, boy... I wish Jesus Christ could be right here so I could pass this conversation over to him and let him take over and let him then take it for the home run on this thing. Well, that's not going to happen, but that doesn't have to happen. Do you know why? Because once the Lord died and he rose again and I trusted Christ as Savior, Christ now lives inside of me. So the greatest we'll call soul winner, the greatest message giver of the gospel already lives inside of me. In addition to that, I have the Holy Spirit and we have the word of God right here so we can do that. 
So those of you that have come to a point in your life that says, I love the Lord and I want others to know about Him too, especially how they can have their sins forgiven and a new life, I want you to pay attention today because we get the privilege of peeking into a real story, a real event. There was a real lady. There was a real well. There were real disciples and real people came out of Sychar to hear what was happening and to witness this whole occasion later on. So I want you to know this is a great story. But to do that, to really feel the, the pathos of all of this, I need to take you a little bit back to show you what's happening as we begin this story. Jesus is one part of, of Israel, we'll say, and now he's going to the northern part of Israel. And back in those days, there was an area called Samaria, Samaria, and in that area, there was a town called Sychar. The Jews would not go into that town or even into that area because many years ago, there was a great big um, problem because the Jews lost that area. They went over to Assyria. Then the Assyrians came in with the Jews. There was a lot of mixed marriages then. And so the pure Jews says, I don't want to go in that area right there. So they wouldn't walk through the area. They wouldn't talk. They wouldn't eat with the people. There, So to get from there to where they wanted to go in further northern Israel, they had to go across the Jordan River, up the area, and back in to get up to where Galilee was. But Jesus says, nope, I had to go through that area of Samaria. So he takes his disciples with him. Just so you know, the disciples he took with him, in my opinion, he took five of them with him because those were the first five disciples. Do you remember who they are? John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So now we see six guys, five guys and Jesus, walking out into Samaria. As they arrive into this area, they come to a city called Sychar there. So Sychar. Now when they got to Sychar, it says Jesus was weary. A couple verses later, it says he was thirsty. So he sat down at a well. Now there are two kinds of wells. One well is in Sychar, the other well is outside. And that's the same well that would be called Jacob's well at the same time that Joseph was there as well. In fact, today it's still there. But the interesting thing is when he sat there, his five guys decided to go into the city of Sychar to go get some food. So wearied and thirsty, he's sitting there. And I believe because he's Almighty God, it wasn't an accident, it was already planned. He knew when he would arrive, he didn't get there too soon, too late, a day earlier, a day later, he was right there because he knew that there'd be one woman that would come out of that city with a water pot empty, needing it to get filled. And so she walked over to this water pot, and now the story takes on tremendous meaning. I could spend months, maybe not months, but at least weeks on this passage to let you know all the theology here. There is so much that's dripping in here to understand about the whole concept of kingdom building than just one woman at a well that Jesus chats with, something happens, and then he moves on to the next city three days later. I want you to know that's not what happens here. There's a lot in this passage. So... Let's take you back to that well at this time. So Jesus is sitting there. A woman comes up. She's now carrying this water pot. And they engage in a conversation. And so I'd like to tell you that when you want to share the gospel, the best way to do that is through communication. So it's the key to communication. Remember that word, communication. While it is important to live a separated life, to live a life where people would look at you and respect you and see that you're an authentic Christian is important, that alone is not enough to communicate the complete story of salvation. At the same time, it's not enough to just give the message of salvation and your life looks no different than the world. But communication is the key part. Now, how he communicated is what we're going to learn in this. He talks to this lady. How did he do it? What did he say? We're going to talk about how he cared for her heart. And then we're going to learn a little bit about the disciples that came on board a little bit later on and what happened after that. But let's go back to this. He's at a time now that he left an area of Jerusalem after he spoke with another man. 
His name was Nicodemus. So we have two guys right here, a guy and a gal here, Nicodemus, and we have this woman at the well. We're going to identify her a little bit better in a moment. So we have two people right here. What we're looking at, if you read chapter 3 and chapter 4, a wonderful stereophonic surround sound picture evangelism. Because you're going to see that he's done it a different way with each person because each person was different. Let's show you the differences. Nicodemus, he was a man, she was a woman. Nicodemus was a noble person. She was a person of questionable reputation. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. He did a lot of miracles and signs and wonders, and Nicodemus saw that. She saw no signs and wonders at all. Nicodemus specifically chose to come to Jesus. She just happened to go for some water, and she met Jesus at that time. So there's a lot of differences between them, but there's a tremendous similarity. I'd like to give you three similarities, two from last week that were clear, and one more to add to that. Last week we talked about the similarity was that when he met those two people, he was still on a mission. And on that mission, he stopped and he took his time to engage them. And there is an application right there for all of us that in order for us to do genuine evangelism, taking that wonderful message of salvation to others, we've got to take the time. And I'm wondering sometimes if we pack our lives with so many events and so many calendared things that when we do have this opportunity, we can just give them, quote, a lick and a promise, maybe a track, maybe a quick little inviter. We satisfy our conscience by saying, well, at least I was nice around them. That's not enough to get the gospel out. So the similarity, he took time with both of them. The second I thought was takes it up a notch. He didn't more than just take time. He was compassionate with them. In other words, he dialogued with Nicodemus and he really zoned in on where Nicodemus was and he showed that he really cared for Nicodemus and the situation that was there. Then he talks to this woman over here and he really zones in with a tremendous amount of compassion with this woman. If you recall when we were together last week, but there was four steps as he was engaging this woman. The first step is he spoke to her heart. In other words, he knew that in order to communicate a message to her, he had to break down some walls to have a relationship. Now, I'm not talking about boyfriend, girlfriend, flirting and all this stuff. I'm just talking about connecting on just my truth, your truth, and let's kind of have a debate. It was not that at all. It was, I care for you kind of a thing, and I want you to know I understand your world. The next area, he went down from the heart level to the mind because he knew that in order for her to be able to come to faith in him as the one that would provide living water and never thirst again, that she had to change her thinking. That's what the real word repentance means. Change of mind. Meta, change, noia, neuro, mind. So he had to appeal to her mind. So he approached her on an intellectual level, theology. And then he moved from that to a desire, knowing that, yes, she could change her mind, but she needs to go to the next area, which is to really make that choice now. So correcting wrong thinking, now she had to have this desire. Sometimes you, you tell people you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. That's true. But you know what you can do? Put salt in their oats and they'll make them thirsty. Well, Jesus is now approaching the desire and it deals with water. Kind of a neat little illustration there. You're thirsty. I'm going to provide you with water. We'll never thirst again. A desire there. Of course, she didn't get it all right. She says, well, maybe I, that means I can have this water and I'll never have to bring my water pot again. No, 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 no. Talking about spiritual water. But even then, her desire was there, but there wasn't enough to take her over the line then to fully engage Christ. So he had to go to the fourth level, which was then get to her level of her conscience. And the conscience is where you get them to a point where they realize the urgency of this. That, hey, wait a second, there's an issue here that I must deal with. So it's, not, it's going from something to something. And here's where we pick up the story for today. So let's all of us go together and quietly walk just outside of Syker. And let's kind of 
Hide behind the tree and look at Jesus still sitting at the well and this woman standing with an empty water pot. And the conversation goes on. Would you follow along with me in John chapter 4? Do you have your Bibles? Take them out if you will now. And if you will, let's bring it up here to verse 15. So the woman said, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have truly said. Well, before we figure out what is her response as we go into this new material, you've got to understand what's happening in this dialogue. There's a conscience there because it said she had five husbands. Now, I'm going to give this. This lady might have had five husbands, and a couple of them might have died, so there might have been a legitimate remarriage. But even if that's the case, she is, he is saying, but the man you're with now is not your husband. Which I think is interesting because it does say that people who live together, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're married. That in order for a marriage and for you to be a husband or a wife, that there has to be an exchange of commitment, maybe publicly, something formal, often legally. So something is happening so that there's a recognition that there's a commitment to one another, husband, wife. That wasn't the case. On the other side, it, I don't think that she was a loose woman like a prostitute. Because it's saying the man you are with now, the idea is that it's a, it's, a, it's a relationship that's going on, not a one-night stand that's happening. And so right now she's sensing, uh-oh, what's happening here? Now they had two schools of divorce. One was a hard school, one was a soft school. But in either case, those Samaritans that still had some of a Jewish understanding from the Pentateuch, which was their Bible, and it was only their Bible then, they knew that this was not right. So there was that conviction. So what was her response to that when Jesus then shot that back to her? Look in verse 19. So we see the response. The woman said to, her, to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So here's what she's saying. She's saying, you know what? Let's talk religion. Notice she didn't try to defend herself. At the same time, she didn't explain herself. But at the same time, she wouldn't let Jesus go any further with that guilt issue. So she shifted that conversation into something that would be religious. Notice how she does in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Let's pause for a moment there. That's interesting that she would say that. So instead of addressing the issue of husbands, she then takes the tack that a lot of people do. When you begin to get into the gospel, and you now are to a point where the person has to recognize that they're a sinner and that they need a savior, they're quick then to get away from that because they have to identify the fact that they're sinners. And so they'll shift to something else and begin to debate or come up with other issues of salvation or in some measure soften the blow about their sin. Sometimes they'll do it by then attacking that which is closest to them. In this case, she's attacking Jesus' religion, so to speak, Judaism at that time. And they did that all the way back to the garden. Lord says to Adam, Adam, what have you done? And he says, oh, the woman made me do that. He goes to the woman. The woman says, the snake made me do that. So it goes on and on and on through this thing. And you could go back to that yourself. The important thing to do is, if you'll follow this carefully, Jesus did not allow himself to be drug into a debate. It's not about how bad your sin is that gets you into heaven or makes you feel lost. You don't have to feel the flame. All you have to do is to smell the smoke. There is a level of understanding that I've got an issue here. And that's what he's doing. But notice how he answers this. It's beautiful. He gives a wonderful response. If you take out your notes, I want you to quickly fill in those blanks because I want to open that up in a bigger way as I exposit this passage. So open your notes right now because I want you to see what, what he's done here. He responds to this in a very beautiful way. He does not ignore her question. When someone starts talking to you, 
and you begin to engage in a conversation with them, don't ignore their question. Generally, that question, even if she's chasing or he's chasing a rabbit trail, is genuine to them that will pull them back into the scene again. So don't say, that's a religious question. I don't want to talk about that. Talk about it a little bit. Secondly, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't humiliate her. Sometimes when we engage a person, a friend or a family member, and they begin to talk about, yes, I know I've done things wrong, it does not matter how many sins that they have done wrong. The point of the matter is, are they a sinner? And you leave it at that. When I used to work with youth, sometimes I wanted the kids to understand that they too are sinners. And sometimes in their mind, they think of a sinner as someone who is horribly wicked out there, or they had to do a voluminous amount of wicked deeds in order for them to become a sinner. Two simple ways to help them understand that. One was one question. Have you ever been put in a timeout or ever gotten a spanking? And the kids would say, oh, I have. I said, that tells you you've done something wrong, either in your nature or your thought. You've done something wrong. Another way I would do that would tell them it's not how big your sin is. I would blow up two balloons and I would have one child or one youth hold one, another youth hold the other one. And I would have a nice knife. I don't mean a wicked switchblade knife, but a big shiny knife that would glisten in the light as we would have that meeting. And then I would have a little pin where they could barely see it. And so I'd have those two, and I'd have the two balloons there, and I'd say, all right, which one of my objects right here would blow up that balloon? And they would all say, well, they both would. And that's the point. It doesn't matter whether you're a big sinner, pop, or a little sinner, pop. It does mean the fact that you've done something wrong. So he didn't humiliate her. He didn't shame her. He just brought her to the point where she at least recognized that she's a savior. She didn't weep and wail and gnash over all of her sin. The third thing is he didn't condemn her. That's part of shaming her. He did not put her down. He allowed truth to do the job and then he brought her to the direction of where it should go. The next is he didn't twist the truth. In other words, he did give the truth. Now, sometimes when I'm asked a question, when people ask me and I don't know the answer to it, I, the very easiest thing to do is just make up an answer and then move on. No, I don't do that and I hope you don't either. You will be asked questions that you don't know the answer to. That happens to anyone who is going to engage anybody in a conversation about Christ. It will come up. When it comes up, we talked about writing the question down, getting the answer, and then going to somebody else to maybe find the answer. I'd like to take it a step further. When you are asked a question you don't know the answer to, humbly as you can, write down their question with a humble heart and admit, I don't know the answer to that question. Write it down very carefully. Make sure you get their name and phone number, maybe email, and then tell them, you know what, I will get you an answer to that question because that's a legitimate question. And you know what, I kind of like to know that myself and I think we should know that too. It's never a sin not to know the answer to the question the first time you're asked. It is the second. However, watch. When you're doing all of this, do you know what you're saying subliminally to that person? You're saying to them, I don't know this, but I'm probably the first honest Christian that you've ever met. Because I'm telling you, I don't know it, but I'm going to find the answer. Here's the second thing you're doing. You're also coming alongside them now, and you're giving yourself an opportunity to have conversation number two. Because now you will have that door open to bring them that answer, to continue that conversation, and hence a relationship of showing time and compassion just like Jesus did. You took the time to be with them. You took the time to study. You took the time to come back to them. And it was done because you love them and you care for them and where they are. Your message never changed. It didn't change with Nicodemus. Believe on the Lord. It didn't change with this woman when he said, I will give you this water. Once you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again forever and ever. All of them are gifts. All of them are found in the person of Jesus Christ. That didn't change. So you can do that with that person if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to. However, in this case, Jesus knows all the answers and he didn't have to do that. The point is he didn't twist it. What did he do? 
He answered the question to bring her back to the point. Now listen, listen, listen. When they ask you that question, you don't know the answer to You've written it down, got the name, phone number, blah, 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 blah. Don't end the conversation then. Fold that piece of paper up, put it somewhere, and then go right back to them and say, you know what, I don't know if Adam had a belly button because he didn't have a mother, but here's what I do know. I do know that God loves us just the way we are. He loves sinners because there's so many of us that are and that Jesus died and he rose again. Bring them right back to the gospel again because you don't know that that one little thought of not answering that question, you still, watch this, you still elevated the truth of the gospel even above that particular question because the power isn't in that question and answer. The power is in the presentation of the gospel but you have quietly and lovingly and appropriately disarmed them at least for a moment in most cases to bring them back to the gospel. And that's what Jesus did here. Follow along now in verse 21 because now you're going to see how Jesus answered her. His response was this, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Now those of you who are very new in your Bible knowledge, I want to help you with this. So you've got to lean into it because I'm going to give you a little bit more than you normally would get. I want you to catch this now. Going back to the people of Samaria, Sychar was right below a place called Mount Gerizim. That is where the Samaritans would worship God, albeit they thought it was the right God, the true God, etc., but they would go there. The Jews went into Jerusalem and they worshiped the Lord there. So there was two places of worship. What Jesus is saying, like this lady saying, you must be a prophet. He said, it doesn't matter where you worship, whether it's on your mountain or it's in Jerusalem. It really doesn't matter. What really matters is that you worship the Lord from the heart. So there's a subliminal message there. He is speaking directly to her as a Samaritan. But he's sending another signal to us who are in the future to the Jews to say, it's not even where you go worship. It's not about external things. Now, this is huge, folks, because what he's also saying is this. There's not this external stuff that brings you to God. So anything we do externally as a human being will not help the Lord. Social good works or perhaps even religious ones by being baptized, doing communion. Whatever you do religiously or socially, no outside things will bring us to the Lord. And that's what he's doing now is to remind her that you're not right, but it really doesn't matter about where the Jews because in the end, it's all about an inner relationship with the Lord. Now stay with me and you'll see what it says. It's beautiful here. It says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Would you mark that in your Bible because that is very, very significant in theology. Well, I don't have the time to bring all of this to you, but I'd like you to bring, you, bring two truths to you from this. When it says salvation is from the Jews... It is not saying that salvation is only if you're Jewish. What it is saying is the following, or, or we the two of the following. First is, when this whole concept of salvation was being developed in the early stages of progressive revelation, it all began with Abraham and the Jews, etc. So salvation really kind of emanated from the Jews. We take it all the way through, and we know that Jesus, who was a Jew, is a Jew. Right? So it all comes from the Jews. So salvation, Christ, Jew, coming out of that whole ethnic group, all right, the Jews. Secondly, when the message of salvation was first given, as you go through the entire Old Testament, you're going to see predominantly the message of the future of a person and their eternal relationship with God was through the Jewish people. 
Now, at the same time, there was a little bit of a wink-wink going on because they would take that same message, and you have Rahab the harlot. She was a Gentile. She came to faith. So there were still some people, but predominantly the missionary call was for the Jews to explain to the Jews, to understand from the Jews that salvation was of and from and to the Jews. So it went to the Jews and came out of the Jews. I could go on. You can go into Romans 3, Romans 9, and that'll talk about how the oracles of God came from Jewish writers. So it goes on and on and on, but it's not exclusively just for the Jews. Back to the passage right here. And by the way, let me, I got to say this too. That's why I think it's important for us since the message of salvation came from the Jews and it's to go to the Jews that we here as a church stand behind those who are involved in Jewish evangelism, not exclusively, but also inclusively that we do that. That at the same time, we allow those who are involved in Jewish work to teach us how to better engage the Jewish people. Why? There's many reasons, but one main reason is because salvation is from the Jews and we want to take the message back to them because they still need to believe in Christ as their Messiah. Old Testament Jews look forward to the Messiah coming. Of course, they look for this big kingdom set up, blah, blah, blah. But they also look to him as the Redeemer, the Lamb of God. We look back to the same Jewish Savior looking this way, and so we need to help them with that. And that's why I'm glad that our mission team is vetting out a couple of folks right now to see who would be the best one that the Lord's leading us to partner with, with that. Now, stay with me because I want to tell you that we're not only to do Jewish work, first the Jews and also to the Gentiles, but we do it all together. Back to the passage now. So Jesus goes a little bit further now and he explains, what does it mean to worship from the inside out? Verse 23, it says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, I don't know about your Bible here, but this is talking about the Lord himself. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, if you will, look up here for a second. It says the Father is seeking those who will be true worshipers, his worshipers of him. I know where you're listening to me, radio or whatever. I want you to know that God loves you and right now he is seeking you. I don't want to make this too mystical. I don't want to make it too wah-wah-wah. But at the same time, it is huge. Today, you're going to hear the simple plan of salvation. God is seeking you to be a true worshiper of Him. And He knows, catch this, the only way you're a true worshiper of Him is when you trust Christ as Savior. That's the beginning part of worship. Then all the other stuff comes after that. But you don't worship Him to get saved. You do it once you've already become a Christian. And He's seeking you right now. Today is the very day that the Lord could be at your well and you're bringing your empty water pot to Him. And He's dialoguing with you right now and He's saying, yes, I want you to be a worshiper of me, but you've got to be a true worshiper of me in spirit and in truth. Let's go a little bit further. It'll open it up a little bit more in verse 24. It says, For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.